This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Good morning. Our first Bible reading can be found on page 1007, right towards the end of your pew Bibles. It comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. We'll be reading together verses 1 to 7. Page 1007. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Uh, Please, if you wish, open your pew Bibles to page 864. Uh, This reading is taken from John chapter 4, verses 27 to 42. Just then, Jesus' disciples came to him. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, What do you want? Or, Why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything. I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four months more then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for the harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life 
so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labour. Others have laboured, and you have entered into their labour. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Saviour of the world. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks, Greta. I've invited Dr. Greg Clark to preach to us this morning uh, to finish our series on the woman at the well. This is the fourth in that series. Uh, Greg is, up till recently, was the CEO of the Bible Society, but more important than that to us, he's a long-term member of our uh, community here at 10 o'clock, so many of you know him already. Thank you, Greg. Do come and preach to us. Thank you, Michael. Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be here on a spring morning at, at St. Mark's, isn't it? I recognise, as I was uh, asked to prepare this sermon, that I was the fourth in four sermons on the one chapter of the Gospel of John, and I wasn't going to be here for the first three. Uh, We were away on holidays. But thanks to the miracle of modern technology, I've been able to listen to the podcasts on the website, which I highly recommend as a wonderful way of keeping up with the storyline of what we're exploring here at church from week to week as we often work through a section of the Bible. So that's been a lovely thing for me and a great benefit to me. And I assume that uh, many of you have been here for all of that series, but you probably don't remember everything that was said beforehand. So let me recap a little bit about where we are in the story, because I'll need you to, to sort of know where we are um, in, uh, in John chapter 4 here. So quickly to recap, Jesus has really been his usual radical self in this passage. He's been speaking to a woman alone at Jacob's well in Samaria. She's a woman of a race, the Samaritans, that have strained relations with the Jews and are held under suspicion, should be avoided, really. Um, These Samaritans did not hold Jerusalem in high regard. They weren't really expecting a Messiah from there. They were a different race of people, and their religious views were just possibly not even to be tolerated. But the woman's conversation with Jesus at the well there amazes her as he tells her that worshipping God the Father is actually a spiritual thing, not connected with race and place, not connected with which mountain you worship, whether it's in Samaria or Jerusalem. Place and race wouldn't matter. And salvation doesn't belong only to the Jews, but to everyone who falls before God in true humility. And what's more, Jesus says to her, just before a passage we reach today, that he himself is a prophet. In fact, he's the Messiah, the awaited prophet, the one who will bring salvation and will bring true understanding of God. He's greater than Moses, whom she probably would have known well because the Samaritans did know the the, uh, Pentateuch, the first section of the Old Testament. But he's greater than all who have gone before. 
That's the point at which we pick up the story as Jesus is talking to the woman at the well and uh, his disciples are returning from a town where he they've gone to try and find some food for him to eat. So uh, you might want to have your Bible open with me. I think it'll help you actually to, to follow along. Uh, there in verses 25 and 26, just before our passage today, Jesus has just declared to this woman probably the biggest of cosmic revelations that you could ever expect, that he himself is the Messiah who is spoken of. Uh, the woman says, I know Messiah's coming. When he comes, he'll proclaim all things to us. And Jesus says to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. It's hard to imagine a bigger revelation than that, but it's typical of Christianity that it would happen here in this lo strange location, unexpected location, to an unexpected person who's an obvious sinner, having had five husbands before and be have a live-in lover at the moment, not a figure of righteousness. That is just so like God to reveal these ultimate truths in that way. So she's amazed and the disciples come along and they don't get it. They're astonished to see him first speaking with this woman. Interestingly enough, they don't even inquire as to why he is. Maybe they're too shocked. Maybe they just aren't interested. Um, we don't know, really, but it's quite typical of the disciples here to not get it. It always reminds me of a Jesus Christ Superstar. And you know the song where the disciples say, what's the buzz? What's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. Like They never quite know what's going on. And that's really the picture of the disciples here is not quite getting what Jesus is about to reveal. And that helps us because Jesus then has a teaching opportunity and we get as readers to hear him explaining to his disciples what's going on. So, but before he does that explaining, the woman leaves to go back to her town, presumably the same town they just got food from, and to ask the people there in great excitement, do you think this person I've met could be the Messiah? And it could be asked two ways. It could be like, there's no way he's the Messiah. Or it could be, do you think finally he could be the Messiah? And so there's this lovely dramatic development as a crowd comes from the city, uh, the town of Sica towards Jesus. We've got to hear more. And so you can imagine, Jesus, if you're making a film, like Jesus would be talking to his disciples here, and there's a kind of crowd arriving to find out more about this amazing man who's just given this incredible revelation to this unlikely woman. Um, and so Jesus is teaching them, and Jesus is teaching them in a way they don't expect. The disciples are concerned about what Jesus is going to eat. Have you eaten? Um, Again, they're not getting it. They're probably worried that he might have eaten food from Samaria, which is probably a bit unclean to do so. Even to touch the bowls the Samarians had used was not, not that great. But Jesus teaches them to change their earthly-mindedness very quickly to a heavenly focus. Their focus is on food. Their focus is on cultural appropriateness. But Jesus very quickly turns them to think about salvation and the very future of the world. And incidentally, I think verse 33 there, uh, is supposed to be a bit humorous for us. It's hard to capture it here in the translation. So the disciples said to one another, surely no one's brought him something to eat. And I think as a, as a reader of the story, you think, hang on, guys, you're not getting this. You know, this is a kind of, once again, the disciples stumble along, let me tell you what's really going on. And so we get those kind of cues as readers to realise that something important has to be said here. Um, you've got to pay attention. And so Jesus' key teaching to them then in the, in the passage is about the coming salvation. And he likens it to a harvest. 
He says, look around you. The fields are all ready for harvest. In fact, at the time, they weren't quite ready, but they're going to be ready for harvest. And that harvest, of course, is going to be a spiritual harvest. Some people have sown the seeds. Some people have prepared you. Now is the time when it's all going to come to fruition, when you're going to see the great salvation of God. You're going to see the great fulfillment of God's plans that have been unfolding before your time. You just need to open your eyes and look at the fields that are ripe for harvest. Well, if you're a Bible reader or you've been a Christian a long time or you've, you've come to church and explored this before, you know where the story's going, and that's marvellous. You know that the harvest he's speaking of is what's going to happen at the end of time, like we saw in that, in that passage from Revelation 21, where finally the great water of life will be given, finally that God will dwell with humanity, finally the plans of this world will be wrapped up and brought to a wonderful new conclusion for us all to enjoy. You know that Jesus will go on to teach more, to do miracles, to die on the cross for our sins, and to rise to new life to show that death can be conquered and there is hope for the future. You know that that's where it's headed. But spare a thought for the people in the story here who don't know that, who are trying to come to terms with the quite outrageous claims of Jesus here that he is the saviour of the world and that he's going to fulfil the long-held hopes not just of the Jewish people, but even of those around. So how has the scene been uh, prepared? Who has done this work of preparing the harvest? And to understand that in terms of our passage, it's useful just to go back to John chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, you might want to flick back. And I'm just going to mention a couple of passages here because a key person in this gospel is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is the one who prepares the way for the Lord. He makes the paths straight so that people will see the Messiah when he's revealed and know who he is. So back in John 1 verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify to the light. So the gospel set up already that John's going to pave the way. He's going to shed the light on who Jesus is. Or verse 15, um, John testifies and cries out, the one who comes after me ranks ahead of me. He was before me. He's the greater one. I'm the lesser one. John is a bit like Isaiah, he even mentions Isaiah preparing the way of the Lord. Um, call out, make his path straight, the Messiah is coming. John baptises Jesus, which is the lesser baptising the greater, something he really wasn't keen to do. Um, and John Baptist's disciples start to follow Jesus. And there's a wonderful story there in, uh, in verse 35, you might want to read later, about Andrew bringing his brother, Simon Peter, to Jesus and saying, we found the Messiah. And this is such an important point in the story of the unfolding of Christianity because Peter was to play such a key role in the leadership of the church. But here he is brought by his brother, which I love. We found the Messiah. Here he is. And so the way is prepared to expect Jesus to do great things. Um, again, in verse 44, we found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. You see the expectation building up around who Jesus is? In John chapter 2, Jesus performs miracles, his first signs of his power, uh, the wine at the wedding of Cana, which is a miracle beloved by all Australians. And uh, at that point it says, the disciples believed him. The disciples believed him. He confronts people in the temple. He shows zeal for his father, his father's house. And then the famous chapter 3 where Jesus actually starts to outline his case that he is the saviour of the world 
to the Pharisee Nicodemus and then travels throughout the Judean countryside. So this is how the harvest field has been ripened. This is how people have been prepared in that area to receive the stunning news that this man, this Jesus, is the saviour of the world, that we should listen to him. In verse 39, we find that actually when the woman goes back to the town, many people do immediately believe her testimony. She, uh, she shows up. She's obviously excited. This man told me everything about myself. How could he have known that? She's amazed by his power and his authority. These kind of signs of his godness, if I can put it that way, the signs that he's special. And many come to believe, we're told. But others don't. And they're the ones who want to come to Jesus. They want to come out and hear more about this man. They need to see him, to stay with him, to hear his own words. And I guess they're the ones who needed more kind of the logic to flow out as to why we should trust that you are the saviour. I find this very interesting, these two kinds of people, because people have different thresholds of conviction. We're quite different when it comes to how we come to believe things. Some people are impressed because of the recommendation of another person. This is how movements grow. You know, I heard Michael Jensen speak, and he's great. You should hear him too. Oh, I'll go to church then. And someone just accepts that and turns up. Others, they want to listen to the podcast. They want to read something. They want to wait and explore more and be convinced that that's a good idea. And this is how social media works, of course, that the companies are always trying to get us to share content because they, they know that your friends will trust you with the message that you pass on through Facebook more than they'll trust, say, a newspaper agency telling you what to think. This kind of shareability of the content is based on the fact that people trust each other's recommendations. So many Samaritans believed like that at the woman's testimony because he seemed to have the powers of a prophet. It is astounding, isn't it, given that she may not have been the most upright of citizens, but her testimony was obviously authentic, and this is how people come to believe. But the others who need more convincing, they come from the town, they stay with Jesus, he talks, and then verse 41, they come to believe because of his words. The more you know about Jesus, the more convincing it is, the more he explains why it is that he can be understood as the saviour of the world and the Messiah who was coming. Now remember, both these groups of believers were actually Samaritans. They had a long journey to come to believe this thing that the Jews were putting forward, that he would be saviour of the world. This was not an easy journey for them, but, but they are convinced. I think a lot of this conviction comes down to your personality. The way you come to your faith comes down to your personality. Um, some people hear a testimony and they believe it. They're convinced. Maybe they have a higher emotional intelligence than others or empathy or they can read people's faces or in some way they get enough information to know that the truth is being told. But for many people... They come to Jesus that way, and they're happy with that, and they hear that testimony, and that's wonderful. My wife, Amelia, and I is over there, have this discussion sometimes about our differences, and she agreed I could use this story. She tends to come to firm beliefs much more readily than I do. She'll hear something, she'll assess it, and she'll know quickly whether it's true or not. She, It's probably empathy, it's probably something like that. She gets it. Me, I'm harder to convince. I've got to read, I've got to think, I've got to read again. And even the end of that process, I'm probably, well, you know, I'm now 73% convinced that that's the truth. 
It's not intelligence. She's a highly trained doctor. She whips me in IQ tests. It's nothing to do with that. It's just personalities and the way our thinking is structured and the way we, our backgrounds have led us to be the people we are and how we deal with information. Neither of these ways of coming to your knowledge, whether it's immediate or it takes a long time, neither approach is presented in the gospel as better than the other. They're just different pathways to coming to conviction. And this is why I feel that there are many ways to come into Christianity. Some people hear Jesus once, they hear the message of the gospel once, they believe it, and they never look back. That's fantastic. Others need more detail, they need more time, they need their questions answered. You can come to Jesus because you experience something amazing in your life, some act of mercy or something you see as miraculous, um, some event that you put down to God, or you wake up one morning, spring in Sydney, and you just can't explain the beauty of the sun other than there must be a God and I want to know this Jesus. That's fine. A lot of people come to know the Lord that way. Or you can come to Jesus by studying the Bible, by reading philosophy, ethics, history, having your deep questions answered, arguing with scholars, listening to podcasts. Either way, you can come authentically to believe that Jesus is the saviour of the world. It's the belief that matters, not the method that shapes it. So can I come then briefly to our culture and reflect on who we are today? And I don't necessarily like taking a gospel story and using it allegorically or symbolically, but I think here we have some justification because Jesus himself tells a symbolic story out of the harvest here. And I think we can read this story as a something of a metaphor for where our culture is at. There are people at, at the well, at the well of life, thirsty for living water, And Christians know that Jesus can give it to them. Their lives, like ours, have been perhaps not gone according to plan. They live with guilt and shame, just like we do. They they live with confusion, with failed relationships, with a need for hope, just like us. They don't know where to turn, just like us. But they have in some ways been prepared. Seeds have been sown. There's some knowledge, some background that might be able to lead them to a conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in the brief amount of time I've got, let me explore just three things I think are going on in Australian culture that give us some sense of how the seed has been sown for those around us. Firstly, I think in Australian life, while people have very low knowledge of the Bible, they have a strong sense of justice. They believe in the principle of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. They know that wrongs should be called to account. People shouldn't get away with it. They know that everyone should have a fair go. And these things emerge from the Christian structure of the society that we are in, so that already people have absorbed something of Judeo-Christian ethic of, of justice. They want to see justice done. And this sense of justice can be an entry point to understand the justice of God and his mercy to us in Jesus. Secondly, I think Australians are very impatient with atheism and inclined and interested in spirituality. In September 11, 2001, this terrible event took place where the world started to turn away from religion and think religion poisons everything, religion's the thing we need to get rid of. But that was a generation ago. The babies born that year are now turning adults this year. They think differently. They see the world differently. 
And although 30% of Australians describe themselves in the census as having no religion, when you dig down further, they're very interested in spiritual questions. The McCrindle Research Group did a, a survey of younger generations and found that Generation Y and Z were more likely to talk about spirituality, Jesus and the Christian faith than their parents' generation or their grandparents' generation. They were far more open, far more interested. No topic is taboo anymore for these generations, including spirituality. And so the seeds are sown, the soil is tilled, there's an opportunity there for the message of Jesus to be heard. And thirdly, I think for Australians, especially those who are perhaps under 30, they live with some sort of impending sense of ecological doom. I know this from my own adult children um, and from those I've spoken to, that there's a sense that the world is at a breaking point, that the planet's on its last legs and there's not much we can do about it. Whatever you think of the matters behind that, that's a feeling and a sense that's there in, in that generation. And it generates quite an apocalyptic mood and a mood into which hope is required beyond politics, beyond the arguments, beyond human effort. Something, we might need a miracle to get us out of this. It's the kind of way that people are thinking. And so there again, the soil's been tilled. There's an opportunity to hear the message of Christ and the salvation that he brings. So there's plenty to work with in Australian life for those of us who are sowers and reapers and those who want the words of Jesus to be heard. Strangely enough, this week, in just a couple of days ago, there was a great instance of how this is the case. I don't know how many here at 10am are listeners to American hip-hop music. A couple of reactions, more than 8 o'clock, I can tell you that. But just a couple of days ago, the uh, very famous musician Kanye West released a new hip-hop album called, does anyone know? Jesus is King, the rector knows. Jesus is King, he's paid to know that sort of thing, yeah. He was at 8 o'clock, he heard, it, heard the sermon before. Jesus is King. Now, this, this fellow Kanye West is a very controversial uh, chap, a, a very famous figure, controversial, erratic in some ways, has given bizarre interviews in the White House with Donald Trump. Um, he's the husband of Kim Kardashian, at which point more 8am people knew who I talked to, was talking about as well. Um, so he comes from that, that really quite strange world of celebrity power. This year, he started a kind of um, church service for celebrities called Sunday Service. And out of that has come this album called Jesus is King. Um, and I have to tell you, on a couple of listens, it is just a worship album to Jesus. It's the oddest thing. Let me give you some lyrics from the song God Is. I'm not going to rap. King of kings, Lord of lords, all the things he has in store, from the rich to the poor, all are welcome through the door. You won't ever be the same when you call on Jesus' name. Listening to the words I'm saying, Jesus saved me, now I'm sane. And now I know, I know God is the force that picked me up. I know Christ is the fountain that filled my cup. I know God is alive, yeah. Now time's going to shed more light on what this means for Kanye West, but he's certainly saying in interviews that he sees himself as thoroughly converted to Christianity. A bit like perhaps Bob Dylan in the past had this period where he claimed to be converted to Christianity. We don't know where it's going for, for Kanye West. But I think there's a few valuable things to say here as I close about what it means to have this kind of thing happening in a culture that's often seen as profoundly secular. Whatever's going on here, the teachings of Jesus are potent. They shocked the woman at the well. 
such that she went to her town, she declared that Messiah had arrived, and people believed her. They came and heard Jesus, and they believed even more. The idea that our culture has moved on from Jesus is just not true. The words of Jesus, his teachings, are still the biggest attention grabber in our culture. Once you hear the message of salvation, it's not something that you you leave behind. It's part of the atmosphere we breathe in the West, in the Middle East, in parts of Africa, in a lot of South America, all over the world, this man's teachings and the records of his life have shaped us. I remember sitting in a conference in Turkey not long ago, hearing a bishop talking about serving the least of these, just like the Gospel of Matthew tells us. And as I was listening to him, I had my screen open, and a story popped up from Australian politics with Annabel Crabb describing the Gospel of Matthew in Australian politics and how we need to serve the least of these around immigration policy. Right across the world, at the same instant, the words of Jesus were being used to refer to how we ought to care for our communities. They are profound. And secondly, lastly, finally, the state of your life does not prevent you from seeing the truth of God in Jesus. The state of your life does not prevent you from seeing the truth of God in Jesus. The Samaritan woman had a complicated life. It had taken many turns. It did not stop her from seeing the authenticity that Jesus Christ was Lord. Her life was not a blocker because her heart and mind were open to the truth. And the good, clean, decent folk who tick all the right social boxes can in fact find it harder to see the truth than those whose lives are out of control. Kanye West's complicated past is no blocker to him coming to Christ. The Apostle Paul was a murderer before he came to Christ. No one is too far away. Jesus says, I am saviour of the world, and this absurd and extraordinary claim is what Christians have to offer. It's what we've come to believe, either quickly or through struggles. And it's what we celebrate here in church each week as we dedicate our lives to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story. We thank you for this woman, for her faith in you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the revelation of the truth that he is and the salvation that he brings. We ask, Lord, that we would be both sowers and reapers of the great harvest of people that you want to come into your kingdom and to enjoy that new creation. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.